0: I went to college where I started wearing saris then. And that's the interesting thing that happened to me. That when I went to college, I think I realized my Indianness. I was proud of who I was. I had been so separated from it, the culture, that when I went there, I became more Indian than anyone.
1: I'm Lindsay Linton Buck, and you're listening to Women in Wyoming where I talk with inspiring and influential women around the state and learn about their lives, journeys, and how they got to where they are today. This time, identity and difference as strength. In this special two-part series, we'll first hear from Nimi McConaugly, a journalist and politician who was born in Madras, India, and will become the first woman of color in the entire country to run a television station, the first Indian-born person in the entire U.S. to be elected to state government in Casper, Wyoming. Then, we'll hear from her daughter, Nina McConaughey, an author who writes about race, identity, and the immigrant experience in the rural
0: West. First, Nimi. I had a really fascinating life in India, partly because of my background, partly because of the time I was born. India was in turmoil because of the protests against the British. The British were colonial powers in India and partly because of the culture of the times then. I was born in Madras to an Indian Christian family. Now that immediately makes me 2% of India. My father worked in the education ministry in Madras. In India, the British had schools that were only for British children. So when India got independence in 1947, the Madras government and people who worked in education said this is unfair for these schools to be open without allowing Indian children. So I was one of the first children to be admitted to this British school in Madras. My brothers and sisters went to regular schools, but I happened to be seven at that time and just starting my first grade, so my father put me in the school. I remember my father putting me on his lap the first day I went to school, I was six or seven. And he said to me, when you go to the school, people are going to say you're a native, that's how they used to call us, the natives, and that you're not going to cut it because you're not like them. But you're going to show that not only can you be like them, but you can be better than them. And I remember the first day going to that school in my white uniform and British school uniform and walking into this massive school and seeing all these white children and all these Anglo-Indian children and I was this little black kid. You know, literally, I was very dark then, and I was very Indian. So I went to school, and with this simple message that I've got to be smart, I've got to be clever. And it was amazing. You know, I went to that school, and all through my nine years of that school, I excelled in everything. I did ballet, I played the piano, I learned Wordsworth poems. I knew the layout of London streets and read Charles Dickens, and, you know, sang Gilbert and Sullivan. I was this little Indian British schoolgirl. And I literally came top of the class every year.
1: When you first went into that school as mm-hmm. one of the only Indian mm-hmm. children, kid, children what was the main thing that you took away from that experience?
0: You know, while I was in it, I didn't see it as being extraordinary or different. I mean, I was a little girl, I was seven years old. I was being sent to what might have been the best school for me at that point, which I normally wouldn't have had access to. I was being given an opportunity that most kids didn't get in Madrasa at that time. And I was discovering a whole new world outside my small sort of Indian home.
1: And did you ever feel disconnected from the majority of India being a Christian, but also going through that school? Or was it still...
0: No, it was. Nina wrote this book, Cowboys and East Indians, and her pitch in that book is not just about Indians, but about what she calls the other, anybody who's not part of the mainstream. The obvious other is the ethnic other, which we can visualize and see. But there are other kinds of separations all the time. All the time, there are economic separations, there are educational separations, all kinds. When I was a child, I realized one thing very early, that I was always the other. You know, even in your own even
1: country. Even in my own
0: home, because I had four brothers and sisters who went to Indian schools and did not have the influences I had in my school, for sure. And then I was a Christian. I went to college where everybody had had a different nationalistic sort of upbringing and education. But I had actually been brought up in a very English way. As I said, you know, I knew country dancing, maple dancing, and I did the Virginia reel and the Highland fling and worn uniforms in school, which was a short white dress to my knees. In India, women don't show their legs, they wear saris. So if I walked down the street through an Indian part of town in my dress, I was so totally separated from Indian women or children who wore long skirts or wore saris and were modest and covered. And I walked with a dress on. I went to college where I started wearing saris then. And that's the interesting thing that happened to me, that when I went to college, I think I realized my Indianness. I was proud of who I was. I had been so separated from it, the culture. That when I went there, I became more Indian than anyone.
1: From that first experience of embracing her Indianness, Nimi never looked back. She even wore her saris to the legislature when she was elected to Wyoming's state government. After college, though, Nimi would go on to have a pretty storied career in journalism in both India and the US. First, moving to Delhi, where she had humble starts clipping newspapers in the newsroom. To getting promoted as a scriptwriter, then working directly with Indira Gandhi, who became India's first and to date only female prime minister. Now, how Nimi got to Colombia, Boston, back to Delhi, and then Casper, Wyoming.
0: So when I went to Delhi, and the average age of the newsroom was 55, men who had been journalists for years. I was a South Indian girl, and they were all North Indian men, and I was the other there. I was what they called the Madrasi girl. I was dark-skinned, I was small, I was very focused and very earnest and determined to make it. Actually when I was hired, I was fired to be a researcher who clipped 39 newspapers every day and filed it. And I thought, why am I doing this dumb job? I've got my degree and I'm so smart, why am I doing this? But I stayed there and watched the journalists. I did my own work and one day one of them didn't show up at 3 o'clock for his taping for that show and there was such a conflict at the office and I went to the director and I said, you know, I did the work for him to get the information, I could write it. And they looked at me and said, you, like you're a researcher? And I'd only been in that office for about six months, I think, at that time. So I wrote the script and I took it to him and they didn't even know what my real capabilities were And so I got my script on the air with my name on it Mm -hmm. that night on national radio. And they made me a script writer. And at Columbia, I was an Indian student against all these Ivy League kids and the girls who came from all these women's colleges. And I went from India after having worked five years in Delhi. I'd covered politics, political journalist. In Delhi for five years as a journalist there. And I felt I knew journalism probably better than most of those girls. And I wore saris, Columbia. So I was totally out of the pale. So I was another there.
1: How did you get from from Delhi to Colombia?
0: It was very simple because Mrs. Gandhi, Mrs. Indra Gandhi had wanted me to get some experience in television. So nobody had experience in television at that time. I was working for the information broadcasting in Delhi, but she was then the information minister, so she knew me. But she had actually become prime minister then in 66 when I applied for uh, journalism school. So I had a letter from fairly high places to say for my for my recommendation for Columbia, And Colombia in, in 1966, television was still new in America at that time. It was like 10 years into television, I think. And television news was just coming up. I mean, my contemporaries were Dan Rather, Te- Brokaw, And so I was very lucky to go to Columbia and have Fred Friendly, who was then the big ABC, head of ABC, who taught. People like Jimmy Breslin taught. I had the biggest teachers at that time. It was exciting to be there. So when I finished at Columbia, I went to Boston, to WGBH, which is the PBS station. I got a job as a production intern there. In 1967, 68, 69 was the Vietnam years. And Boston Public Television was so involved with the anti-Vietnam protests and was exciting. But the one acceptance I had in Boston, I was Indian. And that was a time when India was huge in America. The Beatles loved India, you know. And and so I was just like a walking India at that time and it worked.
1: What was it like going from India to Casper, Wyoming?
0: I had just returned from Boston to Delhi. And I had learned so much there. I thought, well, this would be cool to do like a public broadcasting station. So I brought in, like I did jazz, which I loved, and I did book reviews. I did interviews with anyone who passed through Delhi. And that's where I had the option to interview some of the heads of state who came through. I got Mrs. Gandhi often to do interviews. So it was kind of an interesting station that I ran. And then I met my husband, and we got married after a year and a half, I guess. Pat was in the international division of this Texas company, and we went to Singapore, where Pat was a geologist there. And we lived in Singapore for five years. Then I had both my children in Singapore, Lila and Nina. So they said, you have to go back to Houston, And relocate stay there and then they'll send you to this Mm -hmm. new post so I think they posted us either to Norway or to Vienna one of the European spots and I thought that's fantastic I would love to live in these countries we arrived in uh, Houston Texas and Pat called me one day when I was in the hotel and said I'm sorry the deal in Europe fell through so we're going to have to stay in America for a short time for six months before they find another overseas posting so I said where do we have to go and he said, either Oklahoma City, Casper, Wyoming, or California. So I said, I'll go look up these places. So I went to Rice University, where we lived nearby, looked at the in the library at the pictures, and Oklahoma City. I didn't really want to go because, you know, Pat and I had a mixed marriage. Well, I don't want to go live in the South. So I said no to that. And then the other place in California was letter B, I don't remember. Anyway, it's an oil town. And I said, no, I don't want to go there. And then I looked at a picture of the Tetons. And I thought, wow, it looks beautiful, just like Switzerland. Let's go. So we took the posting in Casper. I remember very well, October 21st, the day we arrived here, there were no leaves on the tree. It was barren. I mean, driving in from the airport, it was prairie. And we came from Singapore, where we had this amazing house with bamboos and orchids and a bungalow, you know, those old bungalows. I didn't drive on the right side of the road here because I drove the British way. I spoke with an accent, I wore a sari, we were in Parkway Plaza with these two kids and Pat was gone and I didn't have a car or anything. So I was here in Casper by myself, I called the office every day and said I can't live here. This place is desolate, there's nobody here, it was empty to me. And I have no connection here and I really can't do this. So I called the office every day and said, please transfer us somewhere else. And they kept calling Pat and saying, we're not going to transfer you. Your wife has to find a house and move in because we were still at the hotel. We stayed there for seven weeks while I called. And then they finally called Pat and said, you've got to rent a place. So we looked around and we rented a house. So we went in there, but I still didn't unpack anything. I left all my boxes that came from overseas in the driveway and in the garage and I told the kids I hate this place the kids also said the same I brainwashed those little kids and said we're going to tell dad we're getting out of here
1: You've stayed in Casper for 40 years so what shifted
0: I went to church that week after I Pat came back and said "We're well, going to have to stay near me you can't do this to the children and to me" So I thought, okay, I'll go to church, because I was an Anglican in India, and we had a community that was very close. My father preached in church, we sang in the choir, I taught Sunday school. It was a very much part of my life. There's no Anglican church here, but I found the Episcopal church here, and I went to church one Sunday with the kids, and there was an amazing priest there from Boston. And because I met somebody from Boston where I knew people, he said, hey, listen, you're struggling with not having an outlet here, I'm absolutely overwhelmed by the population of people coming into Wyoming. I don't have an assistant. So he said, would you like to be like a lay assistant to me, which basically means you go to the hospital to visit sick ladies or shut-ins and be like a visitor for me, stand in for me. He said, we'll do it three afternoons and I'll find you a babysitter and it'll give you a chance to connect with people. So I thought, okay, I'll do this. So on a Friday, they spoke to the vestry and they okayed this job that I would do three afternoons. And on Saturday night, my phone rang at 11 o'clock, and I picked up the phone, and it was a woman. And she said to me, I called Father Kinner's office, and they said he was gone. So they said, they asked me to talk to you because you're his assistant. And I thought, wow, I haven't even started this job. I'm not his assistant. I tried to tell her that really I didn't know anything. And then I realized that she was really troubled. And she was reaching out to someone she doesn't even know because she had a need. I asked her what was the problem. And she said he'd been counseling her. She was an alcoholic. And someone told her that her husband was having an affair with her best friend. And here I am sitting in my house with two children. I don't know anybody here except for having gone to church that one time. I said to her, you know, where are you going to go? She said, I don't care. I'm just tell Father Kinna, I'm sorry, I couldn't make it. I'm just not going to stay alive. So I thought there's nothing I can do. I didn't drive, I didn't have a car. So I said, can I talk to your husband? Which was daring of me, considering he could have told me to take a flying jump because I was, you know, he he didn't know me even. And I still had the strange foreign accent. So he came on the line and I said to him, listen, you don't know me and I don't know you. But the situation is bad. If you leave now, your wife is not going to handle this. So I said, if you would just stay till 10 o'clock tomorrow morning with her, I will come at 10 and take over. And then you can leave. But that's all I'm asking you. Did he listen? Yes. And I saw the woman and she lived. But the interesting thing was that opened up something for me that I was not prepared to do. And after that, I found that the job I was supposed to take soup to old ladies turned into a job because there were so many families at that time because of the boom, because of the money that had come in in the oil field. A lot of people were gone, husbands were gone, wives were by themselves. There was new money, quick money. It was a whole unsettled time in Wyoming. And I'm not a trained social worker at all. In fact, my jobs as a lawyer, as a politician, as a writer makes me be more of just a spectator rather than an involved person. But I don't know. I think maybe it was my years of religion that was underlying in my life or the fact that I had been so alienated when I got here and I realized how all you need is a hand to hold or someone to listen to you. And it just translated into the most amazing ministry I had here. And so I slowly started unpacking my bags while I did this job. I was helping people in the church. And suddenly, six months from then, I'd unpacked the whole house and settled in. And Pat called me and said they transferred us to Iran. But I said, no, I don't want to go because I've got, there's something here I can do which makes a difference. I don't want to walk away from this.
1: To go in six months to have yeah. that big of a shift from yeah. just wanting to leave to that yeah.
0: feeling. And I didn't incredible. want to leave then. Yeah. I felt I was making a difference and it made a big difference. And I had found some meaning for things. The house we were renting at that time, the six months limit came up, and the lady said, I want to sell the house. So we bought her house. Pat quit his job, and he decided to go independent consultancy, which was risky, but he started that. And we told each other when the children finish Montessori, we'll leave. I'll just finish this job in two, three years, and we'll leave. They finished Montessori, got into elementary school, and I said, when they finish elementary, we'll leave. And then it was when they finished high school. Junior high, high school, they went to college. And then, of course, I started getting more and more involved with the community in a real sense and working at the station. I realized we've had the resources to move anywhere. We could go to Palm Springs or Florida and have a beautiful home and live a lovely life, you know, go live in a condominium where we play bridge and play golf and meet other people like us for drinks in the afternoon and be the retired life. It was so horrifying for me. I couldn't believe it, I just can't do it. And I worked for the hospice. In fact, I was one of the first people to help start a hospice here. So I was a volunteer and I used to help a lot of people who were dying. So I went to a lot of funerals and I said to Pat, if I died in Palm Springs or you know, some beautiful place, who will come to my funeral that really knows me? They'd know nothing about my journey. The support I've had from people who love me here, and they're not any relatives. They're just people that I've put out to over the years. And I said to Pat, these are all the people, if they come to my funeral, they will see my life and my journey, and they will know what they are mourning. It's not just somebody died, you know. And also, the main thing I, I learned was the support for my family, for Leela, for Nina, for Patrick, especially for Patrick, who will be there for him, who knows me couldn't even talk about me to him. So we decided to stay here.
1: Next, How Nimi became the first Indian-born person in the entire U.S. to ever be elected to state government. You became the first Indian-born person in the entire U.S. To yeah,
0: to ever s- be elected to a legislature. When I wanted to run for elections, I was at the station as news director and as a journalist in Casper, and I'd done that for five years, and I'd really been... I think, very successful in pulling that station because I ran it like a PBS station. I did in-depth stories, I did community stories. I felt if you wanted to watch national news, you can tune in on any station. What you can't get is local news. And local news, which is a murder, a killing, is easy. But there are stories here that nobody sees. And so I did a lot of human interest stories that were positive, not necessarily pablum. And then they had a huge budget cut. And as usual, they came down, and I was the most paid, I guess, at the station. And so I left the station. And I didn't know what to do, but I thought, well, I'll just do some freelance work, writing. I was very interested in making film, and I had some experience. So I thought I'll just go and be an independent freelance filmmaker, documentary filmmaker. That's what I thought I'd do. And then Charlie Scott wanted to run for governor that year. So when I left the station, he called me and said, I'm running for the governor's seat. Would you be my public relations for the elections? So I ran Charlie's campaign, which is a great eye-opener. But while I was running his campaign, I watched the other races that were being run. And halfway through the campaign, I saw the house seat that was my house seat at that time. And I thought to myself, this is my district. This is my seat. I'm doing Charlie's campaign. I could do this. And I remember my children were at college in Minnesota. We drove out to Minneapolis to see the girls, and on the way we stopped in some place, Wall, South Dakota, somewhere, and we stopped for lunch. And when I came back, I said to Patrick, do you think I should run for that seat? And he said, no, I hate politics. He said, I don't want anyone in my family to do politics. So I didn't say anything. Then I went to Minneapolis to the school, and on our way back, I called to check with somebody, and I said, when is the closing for the filing? And they said, it's tomorrow. And I thought, wow, maybe I should just fax this and uh, send it. So I called the city office and I got a application for filing. And I remember so well, we were coming back through Gillette, I think. And I stopped and I said to Pat, I'm going to file. I can take it back. I don't have to run, but I really don't want to lose this opportunity to run. So I did that. We came back and... I'd run my primary and run Charlie's campaign, and I was committed to Charlie. So I said, I won't do much for the primary. If I get through the primary, I'll really work. So I got into the primary, and Charlie lost. Now, I have to put a postscript here to explain myself, because a lot of times I know I'm up against people who can't figure me out. I ran as a Republican. Now, that was shocking to a lot of people who knew me on the air as a news director and as a journalist in Casper. And as a community person for years, I'd lived here before I ran for for my elections. I came here in 76, and I think I ran in 94. All those years, I was very involved with the community. People would look at me and also presume anybody who's of color is a Democrat, which is a common misconception, I think. But anyway, the reason I ran as a Republican was when I was news director, I was the political correspondent at the station. I interviewed all sorts of people, whoever came through from Washington, because we were one of the three stations and we had access to anybody who came through. So I covered a lot of politics here. Now, when I was working as a journalist, I was taught fiercely that a journalist just reports the facts, does not take sides. And you never know if a person is Republican or Democrat. So all the years that I covered news, I had no biases. In fact, I had no commitment to either party. But while I was covering, I understood the politics of Wyoming very well. And I tell you, I saw the abysmal, truly abysmal way, state politics, the direction it was taking. But I thought the Republicans are going to be in leadership in the state And if somebody moderate got into the leadership, the only way the party will swing back to the center is if enough centrists and moderates ran in the Republican Party and pulled it back to the center. So I thought, if I am in the Republican Party, I can believe and vote my conscience and still be able to, you know, have a voice that's moderate. If it's an oil vote, because I was a Republican and because my husband's a geologist, People just thought, oh, she's going to vote the energy wave. But I voted for the Sierra Club. I voted for issues that are environmental. I'm pro-choice, and the Republican Party is not. I've been chastised at caucuses about my stand, but I did it.
1: How did you do it? How did you win that election?
0: I went to every single household. There's probably 5,000-something houses in my district, and personally, and asked them for their issues. And sometimes I'd go to a door and knock, and this big burly guy would come out drinking his beer in his undershirt, and I'd knock on the door and say, I'm running to represent you. And you know what's amazing about Wyoming is that people actually respect courage. They respect somebody who's willing to step up and take a risk. And I think that spirit worked for me. And... I was on the news, my face was there. And also, as I said, I had been known in the community, when you're the only woman wearing six yards of cloth with a spot on your head, people don't forget you easily. (laughs) So that worked for me too.
1: This idea of courage, being respected, even though you look different, you are different, you're still getting in front of these people and saying, I want to represent you.
0: Anyone can do it. And when I spoke after I was elected and talked about being you know, elected to the Wyoming legislature. Some kids stood up and said to me, how could you do that? You're not white, you're not, you're a woman, you're from another country. How did you dare to do that? And I said, if I didn't try, I wouldn't have been elected. If I'd said, oh, I can't do it. And you can do it. With the color of my skin and the way I dress and what I am from another country even, any one of you can do what I did. You just have to have courage and trust and believe in yourself, and you have to accept defeat and not let that stop you. You know, keep trying. And I feel that's a gift I've been given by being in Wyoming. I could have gone to New York. I could have gone to Norway. I could have gone somewhere else. And I've often thought about that. If we first came and I left, I would probably be doing a successful job somewhere, working for myself or doing a professional thing. But I would have lost all the human contact I've had because of my identity, which has helped me so much, you know, be a complete person. You know, I could have been a successful politician, a successful journalist, but I think sometimes I'm a successful human being because of the opportunities I've had to be different.
1: Well, I was just going to say, you know, a girl from, little girl from Madras, India, who came in a very roundabout way to Casper, Wyoming, and did not want to stay, but now has made her life here 40 years later. If you were to tell yourself at that age, this is what your life is gonna be, what would you have thought?
0: i tell you an interesting picture. When I was a little girl, we lived, in a, we lived in the city, and the top floor was an open terrace. It was just open to the skies. And because it was so hot in the summers, we'd often, in the summer night, we would take our bedrolls up to the terrace and just put it on the floor and lie down and sleep there. And on the main street, there was a movie theater. And the movies that came were like Roy Rogers, Gene Autry Westerns, or the G-Men, you know, government films. And I'd lie on the terrace, and I could hear the soundtrack. So I would follow the whole movie till the very end. Listening to that movie soundtracks, I would think, boy, never occurred I could ever do this. There was no question in my mind that this would ever happen to me. And then I would lie there and the airplanes would go ahead at night. And I would see these big airplanes with lighted windows. And you could almost see heads in the windows because it flew quite low. And I would lie and look at the plane and i think, I wonder where it's going. I wonder if i ever be in a plane one day and go to some of these places. As a little girl, I had such a vivid imagination. I was seven, eight years old. And I would think these things about the American movies and the airplanes flying when I was sworn in as a legislator and I was made honorary speaker of the house for that ceremony, I was sitting on the speaker's, standing in the speaker's podium, facing this whole house, we're being sworn in. My mind flashed back to that moment. It was so strange. I thought to myself, that little brown girl lying on the terrace, listening to the soundtrack of cowboy movies. Did I ever think I'd end up in the cowboy country, you know? Like, I would listen to the horses galloping and the shouts and Roy Rogers' voice. And here I am in the Wyoming state legislature being sworn in as a legislator. And who would have thought this little girl from India would have ended up here?
1: Yeah, what is your takeaway from that full circle moment in a lot of ways?
0: And really, that's exactly what it is. When you're successful, in many ways, the ego is a very important part of you. You've got to believe in yourself. And the ego's so big. And for me, it was watered and nourished by the fact that I was different. So when I became news director, I was the first news director in the country woman of colour. And definitely the first Asian anywhere. So it gives you a certain high. You're kind of, you know, useful to people. So people tend to sometimes suck up to you because they want something angle of a story there. When I became a legislator it was the same because I had a vote and therefore anybody who you know came to me and was lovely to me I knew what the angles came from but it was very heady and it's you're human you fall for this and I can walk into a room and say boy you know I'm different from everybody here I'm wearing a sari and I'm a legislator it goes to your head sometimes and I was on a high for several years I had my heart surgery and I was lying in the ICU for several weeks and at one point they thought I wouldn't make it through the night and my children and my husband came to say goodbye to me. I lay there I was intubated I couldn't speak or say anything to them but my mind was working and I thought to myself when the chips are down who really shows up? People who really are part of you. The rest of the people your relevance stops when you stop being relevant to them. And I thought to myself, when you're validated by people, when they want you or they need you, or you can do something for them, but when your validation comes from inside you and you validate yourself, that can't be taken away by anyone. And that's, a, that's really the lesson I've learned, that the color of my skin, my successes, nothing matters. And that's a journey I've had since in the last, I'd say, few years. That I've learned more and more that if I look for validation and approval and acceptance outside because I think who I am, it doesn't matter. But if I if I know what I've done makes me a valid person for me, that's permanent. Nobody can take it away.
1: That was Nimi McConaughey. And if you like what you hear, go to our site at womeninwyoming.com where you can listen, subscribe, and see more stories like Nimi's about women who shaped the West. This project is supported in part by the Wyoming Humanities Council and the Equipoise Fund. Well, Mentum is our nonprofit fiscal sponsor. To learn more about how you can sponsor a profile or make a tax-deductible contribution to the project and see that more of these stories are out in the world, send us an email to support at womeninwyoming.com, or you can go to our website and find more information there. I'm Lindsay Linton Buck, and you've been listening to Women in Wyoming.